This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business, I really have a special guest, and I, I know I say that every week, but this week our special guest is literally a special master. His name is Ken Feinberg, and you probably know him as the person who essentially handled some of the compensation claims of some of the most horrific experiences in in recent American history. He was the special master of the September 11th Victims' Compensation Fund, the BP Gulf Settlement, General Motors, the Pazar, Boston Marathon bombing, on and on down the whole list. And uh, I I keep saying I want to try and interview uh, new and different people who might not be the usual economist, hedge fund manager, slash a trader and, and go a little further afield. And today we do just that. Uh, I think he's really a fascinating, fascinating gentleman. The country really owes him a debt of gratitude. You may not know this, but he did the entire September 11 compensation fund pro bono. That's him and his office working for 33 months really to to help resolve one of the great tragedies in, in recent American history. And he did it uh, at great personal um, psychological cost to himself and, and no compensation. And especially considering the government doled out $7 billion in, in victim compensation, he certainly was entitled to a, a reasonable fee. And, and he decided uh, as a patriot, this is what he wanted to do. This is how he wanted to give back to his country. And, and that's really quite wonderful. I, I think you will find him to be a thoughtful, philosophical, interesting gentleman who who has just worked on some of the most amazing uh, things in, in American history. So rather than have me babble without any further ado, my conversation with special master Ken Feinberg. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I have a special guest, and when I say special, he is literally a special master One Ken Feinberg, you probably know the name as, uh, I'm only going to do the short version of your curriculum vitae, special master for the September 11th Victims' Compensation Fund. He handled the BP Gulf settlement, the GM ignition situation, the financial crisis known as the Pazar. We'll talk about why that's an inappropriate name. Um, Boston Marathon, one fun, fun bombing, Sandusky, Penn State, Newton, Sandy Hook. The this is just the the tip of the uh, iceberg. There's many more. I'm going to start with a quote from the Boston Globe that says, "If scientists ever perfect human cloning, they should make copies of Kenneth Feinberg, the Brockton native and former Ted Kennedy staffer, who's become renowned for allocating money wisely amid political and emotional firestorms." Ken Feinberg. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. Glad to be here. So that's really quite an amazing curriculum vitae, all the different things you've worked on over <clears> the years. And and we'll, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But you once said something, and, and it contradicts some common experience I've had. So I, I want to have you start out with uh, responding to this. I, I always believed that anytime someone says, look, it's not the money, it's the principle, it's almost always the money. But when that came up in the September 11th funds, 
you actually had an interesting quote. You said, it's not greed, but grief. Explain that. Uh, Money in our society viewed as a barometer or as a reflection on unanticipated, unpredicted grief resulting from the attacks that led to deaths and physical injuries so that survivors, Mm -hmm. either of the attacks or the family of the dead, view the compensation as a reflection on the value of a lost loved one in times of grief. And that's why it's almost like an emotional salve to what they've confronted and faced. So it's really, in that situation, it's not about the money. It's about what they're feeling and how could you possibly put a number on this? That's right. The toughest part in all of these programs, Barry, that you referenced in your introduction The toughest part clearly is not calculating damages or the amount of money that somebody should receive. I think that's not rocket science. It's done every day in our society. Here's your earnings expectation. Here's your life expectancy. That's right. A times B equals C. Here's an amount for pain and suffering, A, B, C, and there's your reward. No. It's the emotion that you confront when you sit one-on-one with people who have suffered horrible loss, and listen to their tales of woe, validating the memory of a lost loved one, venting about life's unfairness, that is what takes its toll, not calculating dollars. Fascinating. So so we're going to come back to more of that, but let, let's roll back to your early career. Uh, you spent some time as administrative assistant and chief of staff for U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy. Uh, You graduated NYU Law School. How did you make your way to Ted Kennedy's office? I was a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, an Mm -hmm. assistant U.S. attorney. And I got word through the grapevine that Ted Kennedy was looking for an experienced criminal law practitioner to join his excellent staff on the Senate Judiciary Committee, criminal law issues. So I applied. Well, I'm a, a, a Brockton, Mass. native. And I applied to Senator Kennedy's office, got an invitation, met with him. He hired me, and that was the beginning of my five years with this extraordinary man, Ted Kennedy. And you eventually become chief of staff for his Senate office. The last two years, 1978 to 1980, I was his chief of staff in the U.S. Senate uh, running his operation. And I must say it was... um, a fabulous opportunity. So so here we are. You're, you're now a known entity on Capitol Hill. September 11th comes along, and uh, the Attorney General of the United States, John Ashcroft, says to you, we need somebody to oversee this congressional fund. And you said, yes, I'll do it, but only if I can do it without compensation. What was the thinking there? Uh, my thinking was I thought it highly inappropriate to be making money off of the dead and the injured uh, resulting from a foreign terrorist attack. I thought it would be unpatriotic, A, and B, I thought that if I were getting money at the same time that I was calculating money for the victims and their families, there would be a firestorm Mm -hmm. that I'm making, blood money. 
Right. And I just thought I had enough challenges without being paid. But you did this for 33 months, plus you and, and most of your office was was running this. That That's quite a commitment of time and energy and resources and, and money. It was. But on the other hand, there never was and there never will be uh, a 9-11 precedent like that one. And And I think what the country went through and is still going through in terms of um, the implications of the 9-11 attacks um, made it imperative that I step up and do my job as a public citizen. When you graduated NYU, did you ever imagine you'd find your way to being a special master? Is this what you thought your, your career would be? Never, ever. I am a poster child for the proposition that people should not plan their career more than one year in advance, and they shouldn't plan their life too far ahead because life has a way of throwing curveballs at everybody and changing the best laid plans. To, to say the least, this is Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. I'm speaking with Special Master Ken Feinberg, and in this segment, we're going to discuss the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund. So uh, obviously, 9-11 is a horrific event my office was headquartered in Two World Trade. I was on in the Long Island office and had a running narrative from my head trader who was um, just outside the building as, as everything happened. A, a horrible scene. The entire country rallies around uh, a, an upsurge of patriotism. And now it lands on your lap to figure out how do you compensate 3,000-plus victims, $7 billion dollars, where do you even begin with something like that? You begin with the statute. Congress passed a law signed by President Bush, and the law said that anybody who wants to come into this fund voluntarily, funded entirely by taxpayer public money, mm-hmm. anybody who wants to do it can voluntarily decide, and a special master appointed by the Attorney General, John Ashcroft, will calculate individual awards, award compensation, and authorize the U.S. Treasury to cut a check. Over the 33-month life of that statute, of that program— That was the whole statute, th- 33 just months, under three years. Right. 97% of all the families that lost a loved one on 9-11 on the airplanes, the World Trade Center, or the Pentagon came into the fund. Only 94 people— decided they'd rather sue than come into the fund, and they all settled their claims five years later. There never was a trial Mm -hmm. on responsibility for 9-11. How many of the 3% that didn't come into the fund were people that you described as so grief-stricken they couldn't even sign a document? Oh, I think that was it. Just, just, because you told a story of going to a woman's house and saying, I filled out the papers for you. This is $2 million. Just sign here. And I, she just said she couldn't do it. That woman was so grief-stricken, Barry, she didn't sue either. Right. Nothing. She did nothing. Nothing. She and I believe a priest who lost a brother uh-huh. were the only two people that neither came into my fund nor litigated against the airlines in the World Trade Center. So paralyzed were they by that's grief, un- that's just, they couldn't do it either. That, that's just uh, just uh, you learn. You learn in doing what I do, that grief can paralyze people. It can make them act so unreasonably. I said to the woman, 
Mrs. Jones, you're going to get about $3 million tax-free. Set up a fund in your son's name. Go away, Mr. Feinberg. I lost my son, and you're here to talk about money. And she never filed. That's just amazing. That's just just astonishing. So 33 months, $7 billion. Um, When you first started thinking about the awards, you approached this almost as if it was the regular calculations that courts make every day when there's any sort of wrongful death claim. That's right. Was, was that part of the congressional mandate? That was part of the congressional mandate. The, the, the Congress, the law, instructed me mm-hmm. in calculating damages to consider the tort system. Well, that's just what I did. Right. That, that's people, how it's done. Some people think that I placed a value on lives based on the moral integrity of an individual. I didn't do that. How do you evaluate the moral integrity of 3,000 people? Rabbis and priests may do that. (laughs) I don't do that. I simply did what you just said. What would the person have earned over a work life but for 9-11? So you got a lot of pushback from, like, firemen's wives and other people who were making, you know, middle-class salaries— Versus investment bankers and bond traders who are making 10 and 20 times that amount. How did you deal with that sort of, uh, that sort of you know, response to this? Very, very difficult. Mr. Feinberg, my husband was a fireman. He died at the World Trade Center. Rushing you're, in to save people. Yeah. You're giving me $2 million. You're giving my next door neighbor, whose wife was a banker for Enron... $4 million. What do you have against my husband? You didn't even meet my husband, and yet you're giving me $2 million less. There is no justice here. And you had to deal with that all the time. Always remember this, I've learned. When you have a program that compensates victims, and there are numerous victims, everybody counts other people's money. It's not just what am I going to receive from Feinberg. What am I going to receive as opposed to my next-door neighbor? And you better batten down the hatches and brace yourself because that gets very, very emotional. The the old joke defines wealth as $100 more than my brother-in-law, That's and right. people are looking at, at other people. Now, in subsequent settlement cases, you basically came up with an, uh, an, the same number for everybody. Did Did that experience impact subsequent? Not at all. Not at all. In subsequent matters in which I, again, am compensating people as an alternative to the tort system, Mm -hmm. BP, Mm -hmm. GM, Mm -hmm. the same. Everybody gets a different amount because you're trying to entice people out of litigating. What about places like Sandy Hook or Aurora, Colorado? Sandy Hook, Aurora, Colorado, Virginia Tech, the Boston Marathon— those aren't alternatives to the tort system. Mm-hmm. Those are gift programs. Mm-hmm. You don't waive your right to sue. Take the money and okay. sue if you want. Those programs are very different. There, I design programs where one size does fit all mm-hmm. because there's no obligation on the part of the recipient to do anything but take the money. That's quite fascinating. So a gift program, it's it's an even divide and and... Did people complain about that? Did you get the same sort of thing or much, much less? People complain and criticize no matter what you do. I wish people could see your face right now. <laughs> people complain. Why shouldn't they complain, Barry? Why shouldn't they? Because it's a tragedy and this is a lovely gift. And here, this will make your 
life a little bit easier, and let's all start the healing process. Mr. Feinberg, I lost my son driving a GM automobile. Mm -hmm. I lost my son on 9-11, and you're offering me money? Bring my son back. How's that, Mr. Feinberg? And you dealt with that every day. Every day. The Boston Marathon. Mr. Jones, you lost your leg when the marathon bombs went off. I'm here to let you know that you're going to receive from One Fund Boston tax-free $1,125,000. I am, Mr. Feinberg? That's what you're going to give me? I got a better idea. Keep the money. Give me my leg back. How's that? I wish I could do that. If I had had the power to do that, you'd have two legs, but I don't have that. I have this gift from people and... um, Thanks, but no thanks. That's that's amazing. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week, special master, Ken Feinberg, who oversaw some of the most complex and complicated litigation and alternatives to litigation, uh, settlement cases of all time. Everything from the September 11th uh, compensation fund to... Agent Orange, that was one of your early careers. The Dalcon Shield, I went. I missed a lot of these. Um, asbestos personal injury uh, litigation, there's a ton. Let's talk about the BP Gulf Fund. That's still probably the most recent, although I guess GM is a little fresher. Um, what was your role in the BP case? The same. In BP, I was asked by the Obama administration in BP to design and administer a compensation program funded entirely by BP to compensate the victims of the oil spill, those businesses and fishermen and shrimpers and hotels on the beach in Florida and the Gulf who were adversely impacted economically by the oil spill. And that's what I did for 16 months. How much money was dispersed out of that fund while you were running it? While I was running it, we distributed in 16 months $6.5 billion. BP put up $20 billion. Mm Mm-hmm. And I distributed the first six and a half billion and paid about a half a million claims mm-hmm. um, and uh, received releases so people wouldn't sue. We, was, we, we compensated 92% of all the victims of the oil spill. So now this was a little different situation. In the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund, you're appointed by the attorney general. You do it pro bono. Here you're hired by BP. How was that process so different uh, from each other? Oh, very different. Mm-hmm. As we, as you pointed out, Barry, 9-11 was a, ver- a patriotic duty. Mm-hmm. This is a international oil company, mm-hmm. um, Flush, who um, decided in its wisdom, we will pay Mr. Feinberg and the entire staff to quickly and efficiently compensate all the victims of the spill. We do not want a replication of Exxon Valdez litigating for 20 years. Right. We want to get rid of this. Move and on. And so we set it up. Move Wrap on. Wrap it up. Move on. Now, um, there was some pushback because you're, you were compensated as opposed to 9-11. How did, how did you respond to people who said, oh, Feinberg can't be fair because he's being paid by BP? Very difficult. First, don't take the money. It's voluntary. If you think that Feinberg is not being fair even though billions of dollars are going out the door, then by all means opt out and litigate. So did people have to make that opt-in or opt-out decision before they knew what their number was? Or do you present a number, 
You could take it or you could sue. Exactly. So I said, here's that seems the, pretty reasonable. Well, here's the money, a free preview, a free mm-hmm. preview. If you think this adequately compensates you in a manner that will allow you to take the money in 60 days and waive your right to litigate, mm-hmm. well, virtually 92%, virtually everybody took right. the money. Why wouldn't they take the money? They saw money flowing out of our office to thousands of people who were apparently satisfied with what they were receiving. Mm-hmm took the money, signed a release not to litigate, and walked away. So subsequent to you leaving um, that compensation fund, 60 Minutes did a piece about how what happened afterwards was people were making claims who essentially had no damage from, uh, or at least that was the argument by BP, that there was no damage from the oil spill. That was the argument. I I explained to people, I'm leaving now. (laughs) I've resolved 92% of all the eligible victims of the spill. And now there's very few left. BP decided to continue a program, not with me, but with others, as you say. And it unraveled. People started filing claims and making uh, making claims on damage. And uh, it became pretty ugly. My, my favorite version of that was the guy in Norway who claimed, uh, claimed well, damage from that. I, so I received yeah. in 16 months... 1,200,000 claims from 50 states. I got about 300 claims from New York. I didn't know the oil had got here to New York. I got claims from 35 foreign countries. Hawaii? You got claims in Hawaii? Everywhere. Alaska. Every, 20 from Alaska. I got claims from Norway, Sweden, Denmark, China, Nigeria. I got claims from everywhere. Well, everybody gets claims from Nigeria, but um, that's usually just a, a, an email fraud. Um, what percentage of the initial claims were junk claims? How many claims did you have to throw I out? I think I threw out two-thirds of the claims. Really? Yeah. That many? People see money and they that's it? They just go after it? Either they file a claim that makes no sense right. or, or they file a claim that may make sense, but they have no proof. Mr. Feinberg, I lost $100,000 because I couldn't fish. <laughs> I see. Well, do you have a tax return or a profit and loss? We do things with a handshake down here. This is Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. I'm here speaking with Ken Feinberg, special master. You know, the American Bar Association called you the master of disaster and said that Ken Feinberg is changing the course of mass tort resolution. Are you? No. Why do you say that? Why? I did Mm 9-11, I did BP, I did GM. That's almost wrapped up now, right? Right. There's three mass torts. Mm -hmm. That's it. Agent Orange, Dalcon Shield. Wait a minute now. uh, Asbestos litigation. No, Agent Orange, Dalcon Shield, and asbestos litigation all were settled under the auspices of a mass tort court. Mm-hmm. Only 9-11, BP, and um, GM are alternative programs divorced from the courts, separate. Ah. So when people say to me, this is the wave of the future, you're changing the law, I'm changing nothing. These programs are aberrations, Barry. Yes they are no. not mainstream. Let, let me push back on that. So- uh, the the Agent Orange case went on for how many years after Vietnam 
before some young kid named Ken Feinberg comes along and says to the chemistry companies who only offered $25,000 for all of them versus the veterans who wanted a billion dollars, you said, oh, that's a range I could work with. And so you have to look at this on a, con I, I don't need to lecture you, on a continuum, starting with Agent Orange and then going to asbestos, you basically took the concept of, hey, there's a better way than everybody banging heads in courts, and let's see if we can find some middle ground that will allow everyone to get on with their lives. There are mass tort cases like Agent Orange, mm -hmm. like Dalcon Shield, like asbestos, where the parties, I think, realize you're better off mediating a settlement mm -hmm. with Ken Feinberg or a judge or whoever, rather than litigate for years and years and roll the dice and pay the lawyers and who knows how it'll end up. That's true. Now, I think most mass torts end up being resolved. Most cases, most litigation. Most litigation sells. gets sure. resolved. In that sense, I mean, there, there, uh, there's a recognition that litigation doesn't work. It's not efficient. But these special programs enacted by Congress or set up by GM or by BP, I think they're a precedent for nothing. It's really? Not nothing. So I'm, I'm wondering, are you waiting for the phone to ring from Volkswagen? Or are you going to have to settle their case for them? I'll say one thing about Volkswagen, uh -huh. which, which people shouldn't lose sight of. No matter what Volkswagen decides to do about this problem, there are no deaths. There are no injuries. These are problems of property value. Some economists did a study that said based on the falsification, there's this much more pollution, and we could figure out statistically 135 more people died from air pollution than would have. Interesting. A model <laughs> that I think your chuckling can be challenged. A little challenged. bit, sure. Can be challenged. Absolutely. But the Volkswagen problem is overwhelmingly a PR problem and an environmental problem where the EPA and the Justice Department are looking at it. But in terms of individual damage to the auto owner, mm -hmm. it is a property claim. Now, there may be v different values, but it's a property claim. Right. You're not involved with calculating, as we did earlier in the segment, calculating lost lives right. or physical injury. This is an easy Very case, different. in other words. Much easier. So, much all right. Easier. So, you know what? Emotionally it, much right. easier. That, that's the Feinberg Law Office in Washington, D.C., Volkswagen, if you want to uh, resolve this sooner rather than later. Um, let, let's come back to this. So, so we, we said earlier... It's easy to calculate the economic value of a life. You look at life expectancy and future earnings, and you could, you could do the math. Uh, philosophically, working with all these tragedies, how has that impacted you as the media? Has it changed your perspective on the value of how we all live our lives? Yes, it has. W what I do is extremely debilitating debilitating. Oh my goodness, you you can't sleep. You you're dealing with people who lost loved ones, who are venting to you about life's unfairness, validating the memory of a lost loved one, raising issues that Solomon would have trouble resolving, and I'm not Solomon by any means. And you You've been you, compared. Well, unfairly. Okay. Um, but but it, it is extremely difficult, um, difficult, and you become very fatalistic. You do. Oh, I don't think I'll plan more than two weeks ahead. You don't know what's going to happen. I, Life has a way, Barry, mm -hmm. of throwing curveballs at everybody. I tell people all the time, 
Don't map your future too far out into the future. Life has a way of changing the rules. I used to work with a judge named Anthony Mercarello. He was a fairly well-known judge. This is 20-plus years ago, and um, back when I was a practicing lawyer. And when he used to say to people trying to settle cases, look at— and by the way, he's still around and still doing mediation. He used to say, at my age, I won't even buy green bananas. And everybody would chuckle, but the thought would enter your head. You're saying the same thing. Absolutely right. I tell law students, Mr. Feinberg, I don't know what I should do with my first job because three years from now, I want to do three years from now, take a job that you like, that you can get, that pays what you need, enjoy it. Don't worry about three years from now. I guarantee you three years from now, you'll have a different outlook than the day day one when you start uh, your current position. So so this has really left a mark on you having having gone through this. Some of the negatives are obvious. What are some of the positives you've taken away from from listening to these horrific tales of loss? I'll tell you one positive. Never underestimate, Barry, the charitable impulse of the American people. It is unbelievable to me. Boston Marathon in 60 days. A hundred thousand people contribute sixty-one million dollars. Wow! For distribution, Virginia Tech in a matter of weeks, eight million dollars. Sandy Hook, Connecticut, eleven million dollars. Aurora, Colorado, five million dollars. People in America come to the aid to the rescue of people in need, and I've been around the world. No nation on earth shows this degree of charity in times of need the way the American people do. There but for fortune. Right. We're going to contribute. Right. Hey, listen, life is random, and how many times— You know, I went to school with a woman who was on one of the 9-11 planes, and how many times do you hear of people changing seats or missing a plane and some tragedy happens— it's completely serendipitous. It's completely random. And, and, and then what people have to confront, I'll never forget a 24-year-old woman came to see me after 9-11, crying, crying. Mr. Feinberg, I lost my husband. He was a fireman at the World Trade Center. He got out of the building. He escaped. He saw that some people were trapped in the lobby. He ran back, saved those people, in the lobby and brought them across the plaza safely to Lower Broadway. While he was walking on the plaza, having rescued them, he was killed when somebody jumped from the 103rd floor of the World Trade Center and hit him, killing them both. Mr. Feinberg, if he had taken one step either way, he'd be alive today. There is no God that would allow this to happen, Mr. Feinberg. Those so, are the stories. So what, what do you say to a person like that? What can you say? Mrs. Jones, I wish I could bring your husband back. I don't have that power. All I can do, small solace, is give you money so you have a bit more financial security for you and your children. But in terms of the horror of this, Mrs. Jones, there's nothing I can say. That's that's unbelievable, and and that stays with you forever. Forever. There's no there's no shaking that off, and and. Moving, moving on. So, you we we mentioned earlier you have a uh, when we were speaking before we started you have a birthday coming up. 
you're going to be 70. Any plans on retiring? Are you going to go to Martha's Vineyard and just watch the waves, or are you enjoying what you're doing too much? Uh, enjoying, I'm not sure is the right word, but I, I um, satisfied I'm satisfied by, by, by contributing and being productive and feeling like you're making a difference. I think that's right. I don't forget, I grew up in Massachusetts at a time when a fair-haired son of Massachusetts was in the White House. Mm -hmm. And I remember, as if it was yesterday, President Kennedy exhorting all of us, give back to the country, public service is a noble undertaking, everybody can make a difference. Government is not a bad word. And I I try and live out that creed, I guess you would say, uh, every day. So... You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. If people want to read more of your work, I know you have a book that came out um, some time ago called Valuing a Life. You occasionally publish. Where where can people find um, your writings? My latest book, Who Gets What? Public Affairs Press 2012. And, you know, my personal supply of that book is virtually inexhaustible, but I think people can go on Amazon and get it. All right. Thank you so much, Ken Feinberg, for for coming by today. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and continue listening. We let the tapes roll and continue chatting. Uh, Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Okay. Welcome to the podcast portion of our show. And, And Ken, in case I forget to say this, Thank you so much for doing this. This is I find this absolutely fascinating. Listeners always make fun of me for using that word, but really I've watched you as have most of America, watched you operate in the public sphere in real time under unthinkable conditions. And I remember seeing one of the first 9/11 hearings with people shaking their fists and yelling at you. I just remember thinking, man, that looks like a terrible, terrible job. I wonder what the hell they're paying him. And the answer is it's a terrible job and they're paying him nothing, although you're really saying it's not such a terrible job because you're giving back and you're doing something patriotic to help the country heal and move on. That's right. And also, frankly, uh, you're helping people in grief. Mm -hmm. You can never, ever get angry at people. I mean, what they're going through. Horrific. They, that's right. Unthinkable. It's unthinkable. unthinkable. And they have every right to vent about life's unfairness. You're the target of this. Mm-hmm. Brace yourself before you take on the assignment. You know what's going to develop, and um, you just prepare yourself. So you said it was debilitating earlier, but I've also heard that you have a couple of ways of coping with this, not the least of which is long drives with music playing. Tell us a little bit about that. I, um, during the day, when you're dealing with these horrible tragedies, you're witnessing firsthand the worst in civilization. Mm -hmm. I mean the worst. Right. Then at night, you go to a symphony concert, or you go sit at the opera, or you listen to chamber music, and it's the height of civilization. So you try and measure and balance the horror with something that will help ease your uh, pain and ease your mind when you're uh, confronting during the day story after story. You wouldn't believe these stories. Well, what we've seen and what we've heard, and those of us who, especially here in New York, but obviously Boston Marathon was a similar situation. It's just human tragedy writ large. There's no other way to... 
to describe it. Mr. Feinberg, I'm 24 years old. I lost my husband. He was a fireman. Mm-hmm. And he left me with our two children, six and four. Now, you're going to give me from the 9-11 fund $3 million. I want it in 30 days. Well, Mrs. Jones, why do you need the money in 30 days? We have to go to the Treasury. They have to do their due diligence. The bureaucracy has to cut a check. It might be 90 days. 30 days. I said, why? Why do you need the money so quickly? Why? I'll tell you why, Mr. Feinberg. I have terminal cancer. I have 10 weeks to live. My husband was going to survive me and take care of our two little ones. Now they're going to be orphans. I have got to get this money while I have my faculties and set up a trust so that they'll be taken care of. We accelerated the money, Barry. That was a true story. That wasn't, she wasn't blowing smoke. Accelerated the money and eight weeks later she died. No kidding. And uh, after the money was paid, the trust was set up. That's right. And these two kids were taken care that's of. That's right. At the very least, their college and everything else. There is, you uh, are. That's now, unbelievable. That is debilitating, let me tell you. And yet, as horrific as that sounds, there has to be an incredible satisfaction that someone in such desperate need comes to you and you're able to do something to resolve it favorably to. I don't want to say to their satisfaction, but to to take care of that situation under those circumstances. Well, you're right. You're not going to satisfy the victims and their there is no There is no filling that hole. No. All you could do is try and ease the suffering a little but bit. But it is satisfying to know that you have run a program, administered a program, that has succeeded the way that Congress or the President of the United States or a judge or a governor or a mayor wanted that program administered. That is very satisfying to know that the Attorney General of the United States and President Bush can, we want you to do this, and that afterward they say, job well done. Yeah, that is very satisfying. And you've probably handed out more money than just about anybody else, uh, certainly more of other people's money, than anybody else in history. Have you ever sat down and figured out the total amount of checks that no, you've dispersed? I haven't. But, but you're right. You're 9/11, right. 9-11, BP, there's 14. Add everything else up. You're not that far away from uh, $18 billion or so. I've become, I tell people, I've become a nationally known philanthropist with other people's money. <laughs> it's sort of an interesting gig, actually. It, it's not. I don't know if philanthropy is the right word, but essentially you're dispersing money. For lack of a better word, a lot of this is charitable deductions, all the money you mentioned earlier for the Boston Marathon bombing and Sandy Hook and Aurora and and Virginia Tech. Every time there's a problem, there's a huge outpouring of support. You're the philanthropist in chief for the United States. Well, um, don't forget, of all these programs, the one that is the most unique, they're all unique, but the one that's really unique is the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund. That fund used public money. Public money, not airline money, not World Trade Center money, public money. And I remember some of the emails I received. Dear Mr. Feinberg, my son died in Oklahoma City. Where's my check? Right. How about the people who were the... 93. Mr. Feinberg, I don't get it. My daughter died in the basement of the World Trade Center 
in the original 93 attacks committed by the very same type of people, where's my check? And it wasn't just terrorism. Dear Mr. Feinberg, last year, my wife saved three little girls from drowning in the Mississippi River, and then she drowned a heroine. Where's my check? You better be careful about setting up special programs for just certain people. That 9-11 fund was mm-hmm. the right thing to do. Absolutely. Don't ever do it again. It was a one-off, a one-of-a-kind, never a to one be repeated. A one-off, one-of-a-kind. That's right. That That's just amazing. So, so what do you say to someone whose family member died in the 1993 World Trade Center attack? Mrs. Jones, you're absolutely right. Ask Congress why you're not eligible. I can't change the law. The law is the law. I have no discretion to add people from 93 or Oklahoma City or a, or a, a drowning victim. I, I can't do it. I can't. And your beef, justifiable criticism, is with the Congress of the United States. They enacted the law. So you threw them under the bus and, hey, I don't want to. Because she's right. A, she's raising She's, she's raising, raising a very good issue. Now, I must say the 9-11 attack, that was something unique in American history. Sure. I think that's rivaled only by the Civil War, Pearl, Pearl Harbor, Harbor yeah. and maybe the assassination of President Kennedy. That's it. That's it. That's sui generis. That's it. And um, but still, I tell people all the time, nine eleven don't ever replicate that fund. That was using taxpayer money. So, so speaking of nine eleven and using taxpayer money, we subsequent we subsequently learned a decade later that a lot of the first responders who showed up at the World Trade Center subsequently became very very ill. All sorts of respiratory diseases and cancers and God knows what. The 9-11 fund was then extended with an additional set of funding for these first responders. Tell us a little bit about that. You, you weren't involved in that, that second. No, that's the, Zadro- the Zadroga program. Yes. Well, that's an offshoot of the 9-11 fund. In other words, elementary fairness. I can see that. Mm-hmm. People got paid for those very diseases back then, but now they have manifested for more people. So the only reason they weren't paid back then is they hadn't become ill yet. Right. Now they're ill. So if you paid them then, you should pay them now. I can understand that argument, I guess. And, and pretty that's really, that's it. After that. You don't ever want to see anything like this again. I, I, I hopefully. I don't think you want the United the, the taxpayer to be funding compensation for certain victims and not others. Bad things happen to good people every day in this country. Life is unfair. There's no 9/11 fund, and I I am dubious about the wisdom of creating special taxpayer-funded programs we didn't do just one, for certain people. We didn't do one after Pearl Harbor, did we? What, no. what happened following the Pearl Harbor attacks? Didn't do one after the Boston Marathon. That was all private money. All private money, 100%. Huh, that, that's quite fascinating. So, so tell us a little something about your background that most people don't know anything about. We know you as the special, um, special mediator, special master. What don't people know about Ken Feinberg? If people want to understand my philosophy on all of this, mm-hmm. they have to understand growing up in the 1950s and 60s right. in Brockton, Massachusetts, when President Kennedy was in the White House, uh, a much more optimistic time. He's promoting public service. 
the um, ask the not peace, what you can what your country can do for you. The Peace Corps and um, giving back to the country, and that every individual can make a difference, and that resonated with me. It also resonated with me. I grew up in a uh, tight knit, loving Jewish family mm-hmm. in Brockton, when everybody was much more optimistic about the future. And, and and pulling yourself up and moving forward. My grandparents were immigrants, and um, it just it helped mold my my outlook. So post-World War II, people are fairly optimistic, but let me push back a little bit from the history books. In the 50s, the sort of Damocles hung over the United States and the Soviet Union. There was the constant threat of, of nuclear annihilation. In the 60s, it felt like the entire social fabric of the nation unwound. And then the 70s was a period of long, it was it was high gas prices and inflation and recession and of even worse, polyester and disco. So that was a terrible era. It wasn't until the 80s and 90s again that things seemed to turn. How negative is that view of history or how nostalgic are you being in your view of history? What? What where it where and lay the truth for uh, for what those eras were like? Maybe somewhere in between. I'm talking about 1957 until the Vietnam buildup around 65, mm-hmm. and during that eight year period when I was a, a, a teenager, mm-hmm. and then got got older in my early 20s. Um, that that was the period where I was most influenced by um, optimism. Vietnam and the civil rights movement changed a lot of that. You're absolutely right. Um, but um, it had an impact on me. So, so essentially, deep down inside, you're an optimistic guy, right? You grew up in that post-World War II era where a, a can-do spirit affected the country. Brockton, Massachusetts, an urban center, uh, over half the shoes worn by Union soldiers in the Civil War were manufactured in Brockton and um, a great industrial mecca. Really, it was. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, it was um, still a town where imports and Chinese imports and Italian imports of shoes, those were, that was the next day or the next year or the next month or the next decade. Hadn't shut the factories down That's right. And and it was just a great time to be a youngster, a Uh great time to be a youngster. Let me guess, you're a uh, Red Sox fan. Well, I was a Red Sox fan for many years. Now, of course, I've lived in Washington for 35 years, and my my children grew up mm-hmm. as Baltimore Oriole fans, Redskin fans, Wizards, Caps. So um, it's hard to maintain a New England allegiance when your kids are um, praising the local schools, so, the, the so local teams. The the head of the Redskins comes to you and says, hey, we have an issue with this naming thing. How do you resolve the, the team uh, name? Resolve the team name, for goodness sakes. It bothers people. It's building up. It continues to build up. If that many people and that many critics find a name as being a problem, change the name. What is the what is the big deal? I am not especially a politically correct guy, but it's hard to look at Redskins and not say, gee, that's a little bit offensive. You know, I look. It's not my team. I'm just, if I were, you asked, if I'm advising him, for Pete's sake, you'll make a fortune the last week. All that merchandise. All that merchandise is out there. For the last week, it'll be, you'll, every shelf will be sold out. And then all the new stuff That's will get right. bought also. That's so right. just from a business perspective, they should change the name. 
that that's something I bet we've never heard uh, heard said before. Um, so you mentioned briefly working with Ted Kennedy, an early mentor of yours. Who else was, um, as well as JFK, uh, philosophically, but who else was a mentor of yours uh, early in your career? There have been four that I've written about. Ted Kennedy was one. Mm-hmm. Master legislator, um, unrivaled, I think, as an effective U.S. senator in getting things done. I would say the other three people that have really influenced my thinking, uh, Judge Jack Weinstein. Oh, federal, sure. Federal judge here in the in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Southern District, New York. Eastern District. Eastern District, that's Brooklyn. right. Brooklyn. Still mm-hmm. sitting. 94 years old, a giant. And sharp as a tack. Sharp as a tack. He was the fellow, the judge, who put me to work on Agent Orange right. and made my career. Mm-hmm. And uh, Judge Weinstein's had a tremendous... I still wouldn't think of resolving an issue without chatting with Judge Weinstein. Really? You still talk to him? All the time. Uh, Justice Breyer, Stephen Breyer, very close to me. Just uh, has a book out, has been doing the circuit lately. That's right. Uh-huh. Justice Breyer and I worked together as aides to Senator Kennedy next, oh, to, really? next door to one another. We sat uh-huh. in the same room, and we're very close friends, and Justice Breyer has had a profound impact on my outlook and on my career. And finally, a professor, Robert Potofsky. I know the name. Of a nationally recognized antitrust expert who uh, taught me, and I was his intern at NYU NYU Law School. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to head up the FTC. He's still alive, living in Washington. And uh, Professor Potofsky got me into a teaching career, teach. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the people that really influenced my uh, outlook. That's a heck of a good list right there. Well, everybody needs mentors. You have mentors. Uh, For sure, absolutely. My mentors don't sit on the Supreme Court. Or are one of the great senators, but I have some people who have influenced me over the years um, that are, are, and of are course, pretty interesting. Your father and mother. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in Brockton in a very loving family with my brother and sister. And we knew that no matter what happened during the day at school or at work or whatever, we would always come home and a very loving mother and father would be waiting to nurture, to counsel, to guide, to love. And believe me, that had a huge impact on, on, on the children. I, I can imagine. It, it, it's one of those things that are impossible to replicate, and people look at that as a core issue in, in the direction the country is going. The, the current generation, so your kids are now old enough to have kids of their own, that generation seems to be very different than the parents you and I grew up with. They're now helicopter parents who... Do everything from the ki- for the kids from you know cradle to to till they're married. It's it's a very different upbringing than I think my generation or your generation experienced. Yes, but you hope that you instill values in your children that are time honored, no matter what the material change or the environmental change, uh, the pace of life. You hope that the core values about love and respect and and reputation, and judgment, uh, stay with them, you hope. You, you could do much worse than that. Um, so we mentioned the, the big four mentors of yours. Philosophically, who are the people who influenced your, your outlook? Well, those, those people. I mm-hmm. think Judge Weinstein, a very activist judge, mm-hmm. who believes that the courts should be there to help the disenfranchised and the, and the, and the less well-off. 
Senator Kennedy, who, of course, was a champion of liberal causes mm-hmm. and was determined to help the little man. Mm-hmm. Um, Justice Breyer, who's consistently one of the four justices on the court that um, you know, feels very strongly about issues like gay marriage mm-hmm. and affirmative action and things like that. Civil rights, justice. Civil rights. And, and So uh, those are the people that uh, influence you. So let's talk a little bit about um, authors. Who You've written a couple of books. Who are some of your favorite authors? What are some of the books that you've enjoyed over the years, whether they relate to law or, or elsewhere? Ernest Hemingway. Really? I mean, Ernest Hemingway, they say that he may have, uh, he may be f- in decline today in terms of some of the major authors. He's revisionist. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that. I think Hemingway's tremendous. Uh, we were in Key West not too long ago, and we got to tour uh, the Hemingway house, which was quite fascinating. That's great. And uh, people don't understand a, gr- a, um, a massive collection of Hem- Hem- Hemingway memorabilia and drafts sit in the Kennedy Library in Boston, the JFK Library. Oh, really? Um, um, Hemingway's children, I guess, were very close to Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. And Jacqueline Kennedy, when she was alive, suggested that an appropriate place to lodge those, uh, house those materials. And now the JFK Library in Boston is a key depository of uh, Hemingway memorabilia. Huh. Who else besides Hemingway? Well, The Great Gatsby, everybody reads. Right. You know, to Kill a Mockingbird, everybody reads. Mm-hmm. I don't get a chance, really, to read much fiction. How about nonfiction? What well, do you nonfiction, like? Nonfiction, I'm a, um, a uh, you know, it's, it's on the run. So it's the New York Times every day mm-hmm. and the Washington Post. It's the New Yorker. It's the New York Review of Books. Sure. You don't really get, I don't, I don't get. Now, in the summer, I just finished reading Evan Thomas's book on Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Fabulous book. I mean, Richard Nixon, I don't want to say that Evan Thomas is a revisionist who, who um, is sympathetic to Nixon. But by laying out the story, you can't help but um, see um, a side of Nixon that um, otherwise people forget because of Watergate and everything. Well, the post-Watergate image almost becomes a caricature, right. and you lose sight of the real man underneath. That's right. That that happens in those sort of situations, and you don't have to be revisionist. You just have to show the full picture. And, and I you think get... Thomas does that. Mm-hmm. Then I read uh, on a lark, I read The History of the Nile River. Really? I just picked it up at a local bookstore on Martha's Vineyard. The history of the Nile, going back to ancient Egypt, right sure. up to the present time. That's the history of civilization, the isn't hist- it? That is the history of civilization, going back thousands of years and the importance of that river in world history. Mm-hmm. And um, I found that to be interesting. So I, I get some time, but um, uh, uh, it's cliche, but I'm too busy. It's I, I can't remember the last piece of fiction I read, and I end up really plowing through not nearly as much nonfiction as I like, but I try and go through a book or two a month if I'm if I'm lucky. But I'm on a train every day. So, so that's where I get to do a little Now my bit of friend reading. my friend Mark Byros is a big believer in in these um oral books with the earphones. Books on tape. Books on tape. He must read a book a week on tape. Right. He's read everything on tape. Yep. Goes to work on tape, coming home on tape, at night on tape, on vacation on tape. And takes airplane trips on mm-hmm. tape. 
And he says, uh, oh, I read that, I read that, I read all the light you cannot see and the girl on the train and all these bestsellers. He listens to them and reads. Not this, listening isn't the same as reading. I I have people tell me, you know, I I listen to your podcast, I'm on the treadmill or I'm taking the train back and forth to work or I go out biking. So it's a different experience hearing it than reading it. I, I like reading when I can. But how often do you get the three or four uninterrupted hours you That's really right. need? And I find that um, if I have a moment of uh, where I'm not meeting with somebody or doing, I'm I'm so tied up thinking about my work mm-hmm. that it's hard to focus on fiction or nonfiction or anything else because you're so occupied with what should that person receive or should that person be eligible or how much, and it you, you take it home with you. You, you strike me as someone, if you would have been born in a, just a few, uh, the next generation, you would be a guy doing meditation on a regular basis, no. sitting cross-legged somewhere and thinking deep thoughts. Oh, look, um, you, you think constantly about what, what you learn and what I do is that public policy involves real people, mm-hmm. live people that have needs and when you're thinking about whether to close down the government, right, or you're thinking about um, uh, filibustering a health bill, you know you better step back. There are real people impacted. There are ramifications by there uh, by are what huge done. ramifications. When I do the 9/11 or BP or any one of these programs, Boston Marathon, Aurora, Sandy Hook, Sandy Hook. 24 first graders murdered. Just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, it's unthinkable. It's unconscionable. Yeah. And and here I am meeting with families who lost first graders. And I'm just telling them, uh, what can you possibly say? You just sit there and listen to them um, vent about life's unfairness. That's what it's all about. Mr. Feinberg, I lost my first, my first grade child. There is no God. What do you say? No God would allow such a thing. I will never again step foot in a church or a synagogue. It can't be that there's a God that would allow this. And you have no answer, none. You just listen. That that depth of grief, supposedly, the, the psychologists all say losing a child, worse than losing a husband or a wife or a parent. It's the worst pain a human can feel. And you hope... When you do what I do, you hope you will not make a mistake. Every time I do one of these programs to compensate innocent people, I make a mistake. You, you, you can't you, help it. You can't help it. I remember an 83-year-old man came to see me after 9-11, Mr. Feinberg, crying. He was crying. Mr. Feinberg, I lost my son at the Pentagon. When the plane hit, he got out. He escaped. But he thought that his sister, who also worked at the Pentagon, was trapped, so he went back in to look for her. She had escaped through a side door. He died looking for her. Now, Mr. Feinberg, my life is over. I'm burying a son. A father should never bury a son. And I looked at this man crying, and I can't believe it. I said to him, Mr. Jones, this is terrible, what happened to your son. I know how you feel. Uh-oh. He looked at me, nice, quiet, Mr. Feinberg. I have some advice for you. 
You have a tough job. I don't envy you. Don't ever tell somebody like me that you know how I feel. You have no idea how I feel. And it sounds pretentious and condescending. I wouldn't do that. I will never do that, that again. That is chilling. Wow. I will never make that mistake again. And you learn every time about mistakes and trying to avoid them. See, I my, you know, my wife says the difference between men and women is women hear something and they, they want to listen. Men hear it and like, all right, what do I have to do to fix this? My first response when you're telling that is, you know, to honor what your son tried to do in saving his sister is you have to keep going for the benefit of your daughter. And I don't know if that's the right thing to say, because I know that they're not looking for your advice. They're just looking for an ear. Be careful about that type of response. That, You're absolutely right. That's my wife's advice. Shut up and listen. Don't offer advice. Empathize. Mm -hmm. I wish I could change this. I can't. And that's it. That, that's uh, really I've, not easy to do in those no, circumstances. No, but I've learned over the years, the less you say to people <laughs> in grief, the better. For, because you'll be fueling this thing. For, to, to say the least. Um, let's take a look at what else. So we went through books. I, only, I know I only have you for another eight minutes. So let's go through some of my favorite questions I ask people. My last four questions I ask all my guests. So you entered the legal industry almost 40 years ago. What has changed in the industry? What is the most significant shift in that field? I think the legal industry hasn't changed that much, except there are too many lawyers. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're reading about this all the time. These lawyers, you know, you, you, we're churning out thousands and thousands of lawyers every year, and we're over-lawyered. Mm -hmm. So I, I advise young people all the time, don't go to law school unless you really want to be a lawyer mm -hmm. and you want to practice law. Don't go because I'm not sure what I want to do. Sure. That's a pretty expensive ambivalence, I must say. An expensive I, ambivalence. Okay. I want to go to law school. I want to go to a very good law school. Mm -hmm. And I want to do very well at law school. Otherwise, Good luck. It's a very competitive world out there, and you better think twice. The stats, and these are old already, but seven years after graduation, 50% of law school graduates aren't practicing. I don't know if that's changed in the past 20 years, but those I think are the it's stats. Higher. Yeah, it could, could very I well think be. It's higher. There just aren't that many legal jobs that's out right. there. And wait till we start outsourcing more and more of it to India. We'll see what That's happens. right. And now that. you go online and you see legal.com and mm -hmm. Zoom and all of this and legal Zoom. And we can give you a will, and we can do a, a simple divorce, and bye bye. It won't cost you very much, and it's all online. And I mean, the world has changed. So, software, software is changing that. So, what do you see as the next major shifts in that profession? Well, I don't know. I mean, I do think there's a trend that three years of law school, the third year should be more clinical, mm -hmm. actual experience out in the field practicing at the DA's office or legal aid or doing some mediation work as a student, but getting out there and getting some real-world experience. There may be a trend towards making three years of law school two years. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some law schools now, like Brooklyn, here, uh, Dean Nick Aller, a very, very um, creative guy, 
who's jamming three years of law school credit into two years Mm -hmm. and inviting students who want to get out of law school in two years to work hard, take the same number of credits, but get out earlier to start working. So we'll watch and see how this uh, develops over the next Hmm. few years. Quite fascinating. So um, what advice would you give to a millennial or someone just getting out of school today at the beginning of their career? I don't mean law school graduates, college graduates. What advice would you give to kids like that? Look. Get yourself a job that you really enjoy. Enjoy getting up on Monday morning and going to work. That's your that's your uh, that's the test milepost. If, if you hate Mondays, up. you're doing the wrong thing. That's right. And don't worry too much about what you're going to be doing three years, four years, five years. Five years ago, Barry Ritholtz didn't see himself doing this. Sh- fabulous show. I actually did, but that's a whole different story. All right, that's a whole different but, story. But for the most part- But it wasn't real. That's right. It was aspirational. And, and actually, it wasn't this show. Five years ago, I was doing television and radio, but not my own show. I always thought, hey, I'm a, I'm a guest. I'm not a host. What the heck do I know about hosting a, a radio show? So actually, you're, you're right. I had no idea this, uh, you know- in my day job, so we run an asset management shop, and we're always talking to people about don't think about the day-to-day noise in the market. Think about when you're going to retire in 20 or 30 years. What do you need to live on? What sort of? We have to walk people through, and there's software that helps us do this, but we walk through people through projections 10, 20, 30 years out, and you're saying... Don't worry so much about 40 years from now. You don't know what next year is going to bring. That's correct. Live in the moment a little more. Enjoy what you have today. And boy, have I seen that in my work. For sure. People went to work on 9-11. They never, uh, perfunctory goodbyes to husbands and wives and brothers and sisters. I'll meet you for dinner. I'll be be home early. uh, Yeah, yeah, talk to to you later, honey. Talk to you later, honey. Never saw him again. Wow. Incinerated. Dust. And, um... You know, you know, my wife and I have a routine every time we fly, I fly and we go through the same process of, hey, I'm in seat 3B. They're shutting the cabin door. I love you. Talk to you later. Ta- call me as soon as you're down. And so, all right, we landed in uh, Miami, landed in uh, because you and that's only since 9-11 that routine developed because you never know when a flight is your last flight. You could write a book. Other people could as well on how 9-11, 13, 14, 15 years ago, has influenced the way we live today, the way we think, the way we act. I would have thought after 9-11 that over a relatively brief period of time, 9-11 would be history and that the American people wouldn't stand for these lines at airports going through. Right. It turns out the American people, I think, have made um, airport security a regular fixture of their lives. They expect it. They don't want it modified. And I'm surprised at that. You know, the American people usually are very forgetful. Mm -hmm. But on something like 9-11, the impacts lasted much longer than I thought. To to say the least. And and my final question, because I promised to get you out of here at 5.30, what do you know today about your practice that you wish you knew 40 years ago when you began? Oh, I don't know about that. That's a very interesting question. I, 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 um, what I know today is, more than 40 years ago, is that you build a sense of trust and credibility on the part of people 
not by marketing and not by branding and not by advertising, by doing and experience. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer that talent will out and that if you're a good lawyer or a good doctor or a good interviewer on Bloomberg TV or Bloomberg Radio or Bloomberg Podcast, that it generates itself. It, 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 it provides you not only a sense of satisfaction, it does me in my practice, but that don't worry too much about tomorrow or the next day. Um, your experience and your credibility enhances tomorrow and the next day. So. It'll worry about the substance. The branding will take care of itself. That's exactly right. Certainly in your case, that's the case. Please. Ken, I, I, if I can call you Ken at this point after an hour and a half, I, I can't begin to thank you enough for this. This has been absolutely delightful. I, I, I've, Like I said earlier, I followed your course of your career as pretty much everyone in America has. And um, I hope we asked you some questions that were a little different than you used to. And I hope I hope I know I've learned a lot of fascinating things about you, you. have. And let me tell you, it, it, you, you have a very civilized approach to this because your show and the reason I was attracted to it, it's not a six minute soundbite. It's not eight minutes. How many quick points can you make? You flesh it out. You give everybody the opportunity. You get into a dialogue, and it's very substantive, and I think you're performing a valuable public service, so thank you. Well, well, on behalf of the American public, let me say thank you for your service. Um, we've been speaking with Special Master Ken Feinberg. Uh, what's the name of your firm, Ken? The, the, the law. Are you ready for this? Yes. The Law Offices of Kenneth R. Feinberg, PC. All right. There you go. That, that's uh, the Law Offices of Kenneth R. Feinberg. I want to thank my recording engineer, Reggie, my producer, uh, Charles Vollmer, and my head of research, uh, Michael Batnick. Be sure and check out all of our other podcasts. Just look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>